Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. We are in the book of Mark, we're still in Mark, and we're in uh, chapter 4, verses 26 through 34, and I'm just going to let Alan jump in and put us into some perspective here. Thanks, Christy. Um, You know, I've kind of been on a roll with the common lectionary, and I must say again that I think the lectionary makes a really unfortunate decision for our passage today. The parable of the sower and the disciples question to Jesus about why he taught in parables, and the interpretation of the parable of the sower is found in all three synoptic gospels. Unfortunately, the Revised Common Lectionary only includes the version in Matthew and Luke in their cycle of readings, and to me, this fails to give Mark's interpretation of this material a hearing in the lectionary, and I think that's incredibly unfortunate. And, and interesting that they decided to do that with such a major p- parable, and of mm-hmm. course, as we'll move on through this, I wonder if it's they're trying to pull out this kind of unique piece of Mark, but I don't think it's necessarily unique without the context. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you have to, you know, you you have to understand the context of the whole chapter, mm-hmm. I think, to be able to put those pieces and in, 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 in understand them, you know. I guess you wouldn't have to, you, as we know, we can we can adapt this for our own needs. Maybe mm-hmm. Perhaps we should adapt this one and, and put the broader parable in there. Well, it's a little hard to read 34 verses <laughs> well, of the gospel true. reading on Sunday. True. That's true. That's true. Well, let's keep, let's head on with this and then sure. tell us a little about it. Well, and one of the reasons why I think this is so unfortunate is because this chapter is, is foundational for understanding Jesus' teaching in, in the gospels. And there's a bit of a tension here in that Jesus' teaching concerns the kingdom of God, which is for all people, but Jesus also presents the mystery of the kingdom of God to them in parables, which apparently enables only those who've responded mm-hmm. in faith to understand what he's saying. And, and we'll look at that a little bit more uh, carefully, but um, the, the so we have this whole issue of why does Jesus teach in parables right. that, it's, that, that it's dealing with. Right. Uh, let me ask this. Is, is this going to be consistent through all three synoptics that are understanding or not so much? Pretty much. Pretty much. There are some, there are some variations, and I'll mm-hmm. point those okay. out. But, yeah, there, it's pretty much the consistent, yeah. Okay, yeah. so go ahead and move on through this interpretation of the parable of the sower. So now, Jesus, of course, in in all three Gospels, provides the interpretation, quote-unquote, to the parable of the sower. But most New Testament scholars would recognize that there's more going uh, on here that meets the eye. I think so, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we get that when we read it, too, yes, honestly. Yes, mm-hmm. and, and, of course, this relates to how we interpret parables in general. Uh, in the early 20th century, Adolf Ulicher and Joachim Jeremias were New Testament scholars who were pioneers in the approach that a parable has one main point and only one point, mm-hmm. which was in opposition to the right. rapid allegorical method of interpreting parables that had been going on for centuries. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. However, more recent scholarship has observed that parables can make more than one point. And, for example, the parable of the sower can demonstrate that the sower works against the odds. Mm-hmm. Um, since three groups of seed fall on soil that fails to produce, 
Uh, and it may relate to Jesus' teaching ministry and the difficulties that Jesus faced, but it may also relate to the ministry of Mark's community mm-hmm. and, and be sort of a, a heads up or a sort of a warning or a sort of an assurance in the, in the face of the difficulties they're going to they're gonna deal with. The parable can also demonstrate that only a portion of the seed that is sown bears fruit, mm-hmm. and yet the harvest from that portion is an extraordinary one, and some have even said this is an impossible one. This is mm-hmm. sort of an exaggeration. And again, this can relate to the relatively meager response to Jesus' teaching ministry. You know, you've got Jesus coming along and saying the kingdom of God is at hand, and, and this was a concept that was familiar in, in Jewish circles, mm-hmm. and yet you, don't, you, know, you, you would expect people to throng to that, and, and they don't. And so that could be part of it, but it could also relate to the situation in Mark's gospel as well, that, um, you know, again, the response may be not so enthusiastic, but those who do respond will bear more than enough fruit mm-hmm. to make up for that. You know, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking about my own my own background, and I've, I've seen tensions from both of those kind of positions. Mm-hmm. One is there's one main point, um, and this desperation to prove that there is one point, mm-hmm. if you will, um, can you give us a kind of time frame? That really kind of took hold in biblical scholarship, uh, New Testament scholarship in the mid-20th century, and then it was probably in the 90s that um, other New Testament scholars began pointing out, you know, that's not the way parables work. I mean, parables, right. you know, that's not, not the way language work, works, you know. Language has, has meaning based on the, the setting of the original. But it's like even with this, you know, we look at the sits im Laban or the situation mm-hmm. in life. If we're talking about Jesus' ministry, it could, it could have one application. If we're talking about Mark's community, mm-hmm. it could have another application. Uh, and, and if we look at, at our life, you know, right. we, could, we can also draw other lessons as well. And that's not the same thing as allegorizing. And really, exactly. Ulicker and Jeremias were, were reacting against, this was a reaction against the excessive allegoration that would take that we saw, every yes. detail of a parable and assign some sort of theological meaning to it. Mm-hmm. And so that's what they were working against. I think what's exciting for me as I... As I think about this concept um, is just how brilliant the parables as a teaching tool is. Yeah, because they really are. it really provides us keep going back to the well, keep reading, and we keep coming up with something new. Again, mm-hmm. the sits and laban, depending on our particular situation. Right. Um, so well, and the parables, metaphors, these kinds of teaching um, methods that Jesus uses they are so powerful because they do have that sort of flexibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, they do. They yeah. do. Okay, so... After the parable of sower, in Mark 4, 10 to 12, the disciples asked Jesus about the parables. That's all Mark says. They just ask him about the parables. Now, in Matthew 13, 10, in the parallel in Matthew chapter 13, the question is, why do you speak to them, that is the crowds, mm-hmm. in parables? And Luke takes it in a different direction. Then his disciples asked him what this parable meant. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit different direction. But I, I tend to follow Mark and Matthew on this more, that it's more about, um, uh, you know, this is a general question about Jesus' use of parables in his teaching ministry. And I can't really improve on a comment by Klein Snodgrass in the Dictionary of Jesus and the Gospels. And he says it this way, Jesus told parables to confront people with the character of God's kingdom, which was often contrary to their expectations, mm-hmm. and to invite them to participate in it and live in accordance mm-hmm. with it. Mm-hmm. And, that, and, now, and, and again, 
parables are flexible enough that they can continually confront us Mm -hmm. with the character of God's kingdom that may be surprising to us. And they can continually, in that confrontation process, you know, there is this invitation to to look at our lives, to change our lives, and to align our lives even more closely with God's kingdom. You know, this is, again, I keep thinking about the, the versatility of the parable, and yet... I keep thinking about how often I go to read these with with folks in my congregation who know the answer. Yes, of course. And yes, of and, course. and they know the interpretation. And yeah. so um, I'm hoping everyone here is is kind of stepping back, especially if you kind of grew up with this one interpretation concept, to um, open your eyes about how how this might be different. Um, well, and frankly, a lot of a lot of New Testament scholars will say that the interpretation of the parable of the sower in all three Gospels, was added later, Mm -hmm. that this was not original to Jesus. Um, I don't, I I mean, I think you can go either way on that. Mm, But I don't, I think it's, I think it's a mistake to limit the application of the parable of the sower to the way in which Jesus and or the Gospel writers apply it Mm -hmm. in their interpretation that they provide. Yeah. Now, the irony is, you know, even though Jesus says to you, you know, (laughs) is given the mystery of the kingdom of of God, uh, Jesus' own disciples consistently fail to understand. And so... (laughs) As my college students say, those stupid disciples. (laughs) Well, and and I'm not sure we would be any better, frankly. Oh, no, no. Because everything Jesus was doing and everything Jesus was saying was running completely contrary to their expectation. He might as well have been speaking a foreign language. Exactly. Exactly. So this does bring us then to our passage for today. And Jesus tells two parables that also compare the kingdom of God with a seed. And I think, actually, this is a good place for us to talk a bit about the kingdom of God in Jesus' teaching, a little bit more anyway. These days, I think there are a lot of anachronistic ideas that have been associated with the kingdom of God. And so in our day and time, questions of gender neutral language, we don't like kingdom or queendom. So what do we say? You know, uh, some people call it a commonwealth. I particularly like the reign of God myself, mm-hmm. but uh, that that's sort of been an obstacle. I think, um, you know, one of the things we need to see is that the biblical message of the kingdom of God is is rooted in the Hebrew Bible, and it's based on the fundamental affirmation that Yahweh reigns. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is a fundamental affirmation. Right. Uh, he reigns as the sovereign one from the throne. This is found throughout the Psalms. It's found in the prophets. And this is a fundamental affirmation of the Hebrew Bible, mm-hmm. that Yahweh reigns. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so that's the origin, really, of the whole concept of kingdom of God in Jesus' teachings. Now, uh, the New Testament uh, understanding of the kingdom, I think, also relates to prophetic ideas surrounding the coming reign mm-hmm. of God on the day yeah. of the Lord. Mm-hmm. You, so is the, there is this sense in which God reigns always from the throne, but there's another sense in which God's reign will be manifested in more tangible ways mm-hmm. on this earth on the day of the Lord. Uh, those ideas also influence the the idea of the kingdom of God in the New Testament. Now, when it comes to Jesus' teaching, then, it's clear that the kingdom of God is the focus of his message. Mm -hmm. He mentions it some 88 times in the Synoptic Gospels. And and in Jesus' teaching, however, the, the Jewish expectation of the restoration of a political realm 
the idea was they were looking for the restoration mm-hmm. of the kingdom of Israel in its glory days under David and Solomon. Jesus totally bypasses that. Right. That's that yes, has no exactly. place. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that has no place in Jesus' teaching. His his message was about the saving reign of God rather than any kind of geopolitical construct. And so one of the key elements then in Jesus' teaching is that the kingdom of God co- operates completely contrary to the way the kingdoms of this world do. And I think this is a key point that gets missed, especially in our context in the PCUSA, by those who insist on using kingdom instead of kingdom. Right, right. Uh, there, there's kind of a subversive uh, aspect to Jesus' teaching about the kingdom yes, of God yes. um, because it turns things upside down. And when we turn it into kingdom instead of kingdom, we lose that mm-hmm. uh, sort of, you know, Jesus' teaching of the kingdom of God, will, I guess you could say it, it sort of deconstructs the whole right. concept of power and kingdom and all of that. And and we, we I think we need that in order to be able to to I, address those ideas that are still very prevalent yeah, today. I, I agree. And we, we've talked about kingdom before. Yeah. Um, and I have not heard it as much lately, but I, I, I know it's still out there. It is. Um, and I, I feel like that if, if we really truly start preaching that all the time, we are not going to really be very, very fair to the scripture and what the scripture is doing. Well, and, you know, I get the point, you know, and I, and I get the, I get the concern, you know, kingdom, the word kingdom in English is associated with power. It's associated with the abuse of power, but that's kind of precisely the point that of the, the kingdom point. of God mm-hmm. in the Bible is that it turns all that upside exactly. down. Exactly. Yeah. So the reign of God in Jesus ministry is, um, surprisingly understated, really. And I think this is part of what's going on in that the people, you know, he teaches them about the kingdom of God in parables and they just kind of miss the point. Mm-hmm. It's because, you know, their expectations about the kingdom of God were very grandiose, you know. <laughs> and Jesus presents a very different kingdom from that. Mm-hmm. presence of the reign of God in Jesus' ministry is so understated, I would say, it, that it was easy to miss it. It was easy yeah, to miss it. I agree. And, and, you know, as Jesus says, one of my favorite ways of pointing out the difference between the kingdom of God and Jesus' ministry and the idea of a kingdom, you know, that where power is, is the defining feature, is that those who enter the kingdom do so like little children. Mm-hmm. They don't enter by force or by conquest. They enter like little children. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we have to understand about that is that, you know, in that day and time, children were kind of the least of the least. Mm-hmm. They had no rights. They There was not this um, romanticized, you know, uh, image of children like we have in our current modern society. Children were, were, were uh, non-entities. And so when Jesus says, you, you receive the kingdom like a child. He's saying something that would have really uh, rubbed against the grain mm-hmm. of most people's egos. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a lot about the kingdom of God in Jesus' teaching that's very different from what people expected. And, and as I've said before, you know, it's true that the kingdom of God does create a kingdom among those who respond in that kind of humility and faith. God's saving reign involves much, much more than that. It extends to the whole of humanity, not just those who have responded right. to faith, and it extends to the whole created uh, order, including nature. And so if we're talking about ecological justice here, you know, the, right. the kingdom of Absolutely. God is, is about creating that. So let me ask, now we have kind of kind of established what is meant by the kingdom of God in, in 
and Jesus's usage. So tell us about how the passages today reflect that kingdom of God or how it sits in that space. Yeah, and I think both of the parables that we look at today in our passage uh, reflect something of this irony about the kingdom of God and Jesus' teachings. You know, it's this, it's this wonderful, transforming, powerful mm-hmm. um, act of God, and yet it's incredibly understated and something that you can, it's so understated that you can miss it. Right. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. Yeah, and so both parables compare the kingdom to seeds. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of the theme, you know, of this chapter. And in both, we see something of the rather understated and unexpected nature of the kingdom of God. In the first parable, the kingdom is compared to someone who would scatter seed on the ground in verse 26. And I don't think it's reading too much into this to notice sort of an absence of any kind of strategy in this method of planting seeds, a lack of effort. You know, it's just somebody throws seeds around on the ground. You know, they scatter them around on the Mm -hmm. ground. And I think the lack of effort on the part of the sower is brought out in that there is no mention of cultivating or tending the seed. They sleep and rise at night and day. (laughs) You Mm -hmm. know, they they just go through their day, they sleep at night, they rise in day, and the seed sprouts and grows, but the sower does not know how. And so there's this sort of total lack of of involvement in the sower Mm -hmm. in in any of the growth or the the fruitfulness of the seed. Mm -hmm. And and I think we're we're meant to see that. It's a bit of an ironical thing. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, there's not much of human agency involved in this. No, no. Um, And in fact, as, as confounding as this one reads to our eye, to our ears, the reformers had no issue with it. They're mm-hmm. like, oh, this is for the minister. Don't worry about what you do. Spread out the word and mm-hmm. and let it grow. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I would I would say there that's that's a that's a valid application. Yeah, of this. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now the key verse I think is in verse twenty eight. The earth bears fruit of itself, mm-hmm. and the verse in verse in Greek is automate hege karpoforai. And the key word there is automate. Now, we, we need to re- resist the anachronistic uh, uh, translation that's saying that, the, that the, the earth bears fruit automatically. <laughs> but oh, sure. automate means of itself or spontaneously. And, and interestingly, and I, this, is a very, this is a rare word in the New Testament, in the Bible, really. It's not mm. used much at all, even in the Septuagint. But it's used in Leviticus 25, where, where the Jubilee year is talked about. And one of the stipulations of the Jubilee year was that in the Jubilee year, they weren't to reap the harvest. They weren't to, to take anything from the fields, even that which grows of itself. And the word in the Septuagint is automate. And so I think we see a kind of a parallel here that, you know, the seed that the sower plants, it just grows of itself. There, there's no really active role that the sower plays here at this point. The seed or the earth produces fruit on its own, first the stalk, then the head, then the full grain in the mm-hmm. head. The only active role the sower plays in all of this is when the grain is ripe mm-hmm. and he goes in with his sickle and harvest the grain. Mm-hmm. So that's the only active right. role that the, that the sower plays in this. You know, the, the rest of it, you know, is all about the right. seed and the earth, and it just kind of works on its own. And, and I think we're meant to understand that, that the kingdom of God is like that. It, 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 it might seem like nothing's happening. Right. Yeah. But in fact, there are seeds out there that are germinating, mm-hmm. uh, kingdom seeds that, that have been planted that are germinating, and they are, they are creating all kinds of change in this world. Mm-hmm. I think exactly. that's kind of the point yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Okay, let's move on. 
So, yeah, there are a couple of ideas then about the kingdom of God in this, in this first parable. The first is that it does its own work. Um, and I think, you know, we can apply that to Jesus' proclamation of the good news of the God, the good news of God, that the kingdom of God has come near. And, you know, it really constitutes the scattering of the seed. And so that message that, you know, the kingdom of God has come near is like a seed that bears fruit on its own in the hearts and lives of those who receive it. And the other idea really is that the only real work of those who seek to promote the kingdom of God is in scattering the seed through their proclamation and then in the harvest when the seed has borne fruit. And I think this reflects also Jesus' comments to his disciples elsewhere about the fields being ripe for harvest mm-hmm. and that they're to go out and work the fields to gather it in. Mm-hmm. So the next parable then is a, the more well-known one, the mustard seed. Yeah. So explain how that is used here in, um, in Mark's gospel. Well, and, and we're probably more familiar with this parable from Matthew's mm-hmm. gospel than we are from Mark's gospel. But they're pretty much the same in terms of content. There's not a whole, not a really a significant difference between the two. And the point of, of the parable of the mustard seed really is the contrast between the beginning and the end. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus says that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. Now, again, some have pointed out that there are, in fact, smaller seeds. Uh, but I don't think that's the point. I, that's not the point. Yeah. yeah. Jesus also says that when it grows up, it becomes the greatest of all shrubs. And, you know, again, I'm sure there are larger shrubs in the natural world. But uh, Jesus is using exaggeration, I think, to make the point that the mustard seed is tiny in comparison with the plant that grows mm-hmm. from it. And so the message about the parable is that the beginnings of the kingdom may be un- unimpressive, uh, and in fact, even surprisingly understated, especially in comparison with traditional Jewish mm-hmm. expectations. But the end result of the kingdom will perhaps be equally surprising in the scope and breadth and extent of the transformation that it brings mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think, you know, I hear this oftentimes when people try to try to um, preach on this uh, passage or try to comment on this passage, uh, they want to make something out of the fact that the birds of the air can make nests in shade. Oh, yes. I I don't think we're meant to make anything out of that detail of the parable. I think that simply serves to emphasize the size size. of the plant. It's big enough that even birds can make a nest Mm -hmm. in the plant. Mm And then furthermore, some have pointed out that the, must, that, that the mustard plant is kind of an invasive species in that it has a tendency to take That's over true, any land mm-hmm. in which it takes root. And while this does seem true to the nature of the kingdom of God in Jesus' teachings, that you know, it's, it's, it's something that is going to, is going to mm-hmm. one day finally be fulfilled and it will be the reality that defines all of creation, um, the only biblical references to mustard seed emphasize how small the seed is. So there's really no there's no em- emphasis in the mm-hmm. Bible about this idea of you know it, it may be an unwanted presence that turns out to um, to actually um, be just what the world needs. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that I'm gonna head back with the comment on the birds only because I've been working with this Bible study and and my my people often get very stuck. Well, they had to put that in there for a really specific reason. It has to have some great meaning. I think there's a tendency to do that. And what I've also found interesting with my Bible study folks, these are not my college students, that they're just insistence on that. This mm-hmm. is the hand of God and therefore this has this great intentionality. Um, that it's there, and then they take things so far out of context that then you then you actually miss the meaning. Right, mm. and and I think you know that comes from. Uh, 
I think some confusion about what it means to approach the Bible as Scripture, Mm -hmm. as the Word of the Lord. You know, some people think if it's the Word of the Lord, there must be hidden meaning Mm -hmm. in every word and phrase. Mm -hmm. I don't think you have to have special, you know, knowledge to be able to read the Bible. I don't think you have to have, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't really see hidden meaning as, as something that is consistent with Scripture in the first place. And so, uh, I mean, obviously Jesus is speaking in parables in a way that, that does kind of um, obscure the message to some extent. But, but the, point of the, of the point of the Bible as Scripture, as the Word of the Lord, is to, is to make that message mm-hmm. open and clear to, to all who will right. hear it. Well, know? And, and, you know, even Luther says, uh, Jesus spoke in parables so simple people could understand it. And so yeah. I, I do think you're right. And I think they can envision. I think if you're thinking about a mustard uh, plant and envisioning it big enough to hold nesting birds, that gives you this 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 uh, sense of how big it is. Mm-hmm. It, it gives you a visual sense. Um, okay, moving <clears throat> on. We have a couple more points to make. Yeah. Uh, so finally, at the after after these two parables, then Mark concludes the chapter on parables, and that's what this whole mm-hmm. this whole chapter is about: parables of the kingdom. By summarizing that Jesus spoke the word, which I would think we would we would assume is the good news of the kingdom mm-hmm. of God, to the people with many such parables. And um, there's an interesting phrase here that seems to be kind of a theme in this chapter. As they were able to hear it. And I think that's an important mm-hmm. key to understanding the whole chapter as well. Uh, Robert Gulick in his Mark commentary in the Word Biblical series points out that hearing is sort of a dominant theme in Mark. Yes, and you find it, it uh-huh. throughout the chapter, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it would seem that this statement balances the earlier one then in Mark 4, 11 through 12. As we saw before there, it would seem that those who are outside... As the word is the word that's used, are prevented from hearing and understanding the good news of the kingdom of God, but perhaps because of the hardness of their own hearts, and and this comes from the fact that that Mark is quoting from Isaiah six mm-hmm. nine here. But for whatever reason, you know, in in Mark eleven, Mark four eleven and twelve, those who are outside are prevented from hearing and understanding. But here it would seem that Jesus used for the parables was meant to provide access to the good news to those who were able to hear it. Mm-hmm. So I think there's kind of a twofold idea here. You know, there's a sense in which the parables do sort of obscure the message for those whose hearts are hardened and and don't have any, you know, interest in hearing the message that Jesus has. But on the other hand, you know, those who are able to hear it can hear the word mm-hmm. that he's preaching through these through these parables. Now, by contrast, Mark says that he explained everything to his own disciples privately or by themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so the disciples get special access to the mystery of the kingdom of God, which is that God's saving reign works very differently from the way in mm-hmm. which anyone could have expected. Um, but as I said earlier, even though they get sort of this special access to the mystery of the kingdom of God, they don't really understand any better than anybody else does in Mark's gospel. Mm, yeah, that's very true. It's very true. Yeah. It's not a, yeah, I am. Um, <laughs> It feels like it ends abruptly to me. Maybe I'm not being fair about that in this um, um, space. I, I guess I guess it's because I I guess we come away still kind of with question marks, and so do the disciples. And maybe mm-hmm. that's exactly what we're supposed to feel. 
There, there is, there is this ambiguity, mm-hmm. and, and and I think I think we saw that earlier. You know, that ambiguity continues throughout Mark's gospel, and, it does. and I think it's intentional because I think you know. Mark writes his gospel, I think, so that those who hear the gospel, which is the way mm-hmm. they would have had access to it in that time, uh, it would have been read in worship as scripture. Um, those who hear the gospel, I think, are, are, are going to be like, why don't they get it? Why don't right. they get it yet? They still don't get it. Why don't right. they get it? And then it's finally the Roman centurion who says, wow, truly, this was the son of right, God. Right, right. It's kind of that. Because, you know, <laughs> we only hear at the beginning, I was thinking of the beginning here where Mark tells us, in the beginning, the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God. But after that, it's all a little bit, who are you? Who do you say that I am? And all these all these question marks. And I think it kind of leaves us, it kind of like pulls us in as the readers to be active mm-hmm. in that yeah. in that space. Well, um, and you know, as we said when we talked about the ending of Mark's gospel, Mm-hmm. Perhaps that's intentional because it's like creating sort of attention for the reader because it's 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 a message that cries out to be spoken. It, exactly, it can't, you can't end it on the on a note of silence. You know, in the, the 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 message must be told. Exactly, exactly. So, I think actually it's pretty genius yeah. when, when you really come down to it. Yeah. Well, we have some interesting things to talk about with the reformers in a little bit. We'll be back. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back, and uh, after a break, we're going to let uh, Christy uh, share with us what she found from the Reformers on this passage. So take it away, please. Sure, sure. There's actually not um, a lot of discourse on on this passage, um, particularly Mark, right? Again. Right. <laughs> However, um, Calvin does note a couple things. In this first um, Mark Mark 4.26, this, this piece that is uniquely Mark, uh, both Calvin and Luther actually kind of see this as a directed towards ministers of the word and saying, look, you go out, you preach the word of God, but you don't have to torment yourselves about, that, about what happens, that God will in God's time have, make the seeds grow. And so the idea was that go to bed, get up, keep scattering the word. So I think that's kind of an interesting take on it. It doesn't both sound that. very results oriented. <laughs> well, it, it doesn't, but I think, you know, this is a time when these, you know, these pastors of the word, they're so hungry to see, oh, we're now preaching the true word. Everybody can hear mm-hmm. it. And then they want to see it happen. Right. And I think this for themselves is a reminder of this is a slow process. And right. I might remind you again with, with Luther, he gets, you know, so caught up of, oh gosh, if people just have access to the word and they can hear it and things are going to change really fast. And then he starts the visitations and realizes, oh my gosh, they don't understand it at all. And it may have been comfort for himself to remember this passage. Well, I think people have a way of uh, getting rooted in their tradition. And it's kind of like Jesus. You know, Jesus right. was was going totally against the grain. As, as I said earlier, you know, he might as well have been speaking a foreign language when he was talking about the kingdom and the parables because it was a totally different take on what God was doing in the world and what they expected God to be doing in the world. Exactly. And I think, exactly. I think the reformers were up against something very similar. A- absolutely. They, they were really asking people to re-envision their lives or at least 
hopefully God by planting it this way would change their lives. And it, it, it didn't happen like they thought it would. I mean, again, your medieval person is basically used to going to church once a year and, and, and it probably reflected an awful lot like we see today and that people are, tend to be kind of lax about it. Um, and it's unfortunate, but it is human nature. <laughs> right, right. So the mustard seed, however, obviously is better known. It's, it's really used, um, as kind of to support Luther's idea of, of faith alone. Mm. Um, and this idea that, that look, it's, you know, the seed is planted there. It's nothing you can do to get salvation, but rather to let um, the word of God grow in you. And so this whole idea that, that if the accessibility to the word becomes kind of the main mm, point. Right. It's, it's scattering like the seed. The seed is the word. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that, that becomes an interesting piece. So it, this then changes to what I consider the next real emphasis here, which is okay. So what happens when the seed is spread and what, how do people respond to it? So this eventually moves itself into what we might think of as the true church mm-hmm. and the false church. And the idea of the true church mm. and the false church is a really big yeah. um, kind of underpinning of the whole Reformation of saying what's the true church and what's the false church. Well, you can see that even in some of the confessions in the book of Confessions. Exactly. You still see it there. And, of course, in their mind, the false church is obviously... Rome. The Roman Catholic Church, right. right? But also anyone who is, you know, again, the radicals are false. Mm-hmm. And they actually attacked false religions as they saw it on uh-huh. this. So they actually attacked Islam and they would have attacked um, Judaism in the same sense. Wow. So I picked up, this is, this is not only in preached, it's not only in writing, but it's also an image. So I picked up an image today, again, if you, if you have a computer in front of you, this is Lu- Lucas Cronach's The True Church. I'll put a link on the on Oh, the yeah, that'd be great. I mean, it, it's, it's very, very well known. Our image has, um, it's, it's basically a church, and in the center of the church is the pulpit, Ah. Uh, obviously emphasizing the word mm-hmm. and the centrality of the word. There's an open Bible on it. There's yeah. an open Bible on it. If you look below on on the actual pulpit are the four Gospels, the four ah, images. It's yes. very tiny. So Yes. Um, <laughs> wow, that is cool. Yeah, it's very cool. So Luther is, is, is there, and Luther is in the center of the pulpit preaching. So he's the messenger of the word. It's like he, he's the center of the whole picture, and he's sort of the dividing line between, yes. between what is true and false. Yes. So it's very interesting, <laughs> right? And so he's pointing right hand, which is kind of an interesting little thing as well, yes. um, on, on the good side. And on well, the, those on my right hand are the sheep who inherit the eternal kingdom exactly. prepared for them by the Father, right? And those right. on the left hand depart, right. you know. And you always see that. This is wow. every time you get one of these images of the mm. true church, you get the good church and the bad, bad church, Right if you hand will. and left exactly. hand. Wow, that's interesting. Um, in other words... It, the, the hints we're looking at and these details that we're looking at out of the scripture, this is actually in, these, these narrow little details are right. actually in this, these woodcuts. Right. So, and I'm not an expert in this, um, but I don't, you don't have to be. These yeah, are designed for can, people to look at, you right? Can see, you can see the imagery, that's right. So pointing um, to the right then is, is if you will, uh, the communion table, um, mm-hmm. but it also has uh, the bit of this is the correct 
altar. Here's Christ on it. The sheep. There's a little sheep holding the, the lamb that was slain. The lamb that and was yet slain. conquered. Exactly. That's, that's from Revelation. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's it, there's a cross, and then Jesus is actually on the cross there mm-hmm. as well. And of course, and it's a crucifix. It's a crucifix. It is a crucifix, yeah. which is very interesting. Yeah. Then also there then is this um, is a whole bunch of laity around it, and and they are taking. This is kind of mm-hmm. important. Uh, both the bread and the wine yes, in communion. I see that. And yeah. you see men and women here. Mm-hmm. What's really important here is that prior to the Reformation, um, Roman Catholic Church, you, you were only able to take the the wafer as given to you by the right. by the right. priest. Um, ah, so here you have you have the, the the people taking both the wine and the bread. Right, and it's served not by a priest, but by someone just like them right elders or, or exactly yeah. by elders yeah. here yeah. and so this is a this is a big piece because the there is a there's an awful lot of stuff going on why the lady can't take the wine they're worried about spilling the blood of christ we've talked mm-hmm. about this before what do you do with it you know in and of itself it it conveys salvation it reminds me of a conversation i just had yesterday of a, a friend of mine as was roman catholic and she started to try to debate with the priest why she couldn't just take the way for herself especially in the midst of covid and he mm-hmm. was explaining that his hands are divinely consecrated and mm. and 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 she's like yes but we're in covid and i don't think you should be handing me the wafer and <laughs> And I, I'm, I'm just seeing this going on. And I thought, yeah, the Reformation happened a long time ago. <laughs> but I just thought, wow, I, 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 mm. I, smi- I smiled behind my mask, friends. It's, it's still enough COVID going on there because I <laughs> decided it was a conversation. Oh, my. And I'm, not, I'm not sure. She, at 75, I decided I probably wasn't going to change right. her church preference. Right. But, um then at the left hand is, um, of course, the mouth of the devil, and it's this fire-breathing mouth coming mm-hmm. out with, with uh, flames and smoke. So it's like this. It's like this beast. It's a beast with a huge mouth yes. with flames coming out and of you it. You could see his eye down yeah, there. Yeah. Okay, and yeah, then a couple of fangs. And I said his often in the often that's a female figure. I, 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 this, really? This, yeah. This this one doesn't have a gender. <laughs> right. No. No. But um, and in it then are are all the our priests and the monks and the cardinals, all the mm-hmm. all the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. And it's very it's very hard to even depict all the little pieces in here. And there's little devils in there, little um the kind of little gargoyly figures you see on a medieval churches mm-hmm. are in there just uh looks like crows. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 the beast is swallowing them all whole. Swallowing them them all whole. Yes. Mm, wow. Yes. So that's an image, again... I mean, a starker image of life versus death, I can't imagine. (laughs) Right, exactly. And of course, this this particular one is really well known. This was published all over on the on the Flugschrift and on the, on the pamphlets mm. that were quickly published in a couple pages and then put out all over. So a lay person, if they couldn't under read, they could still read this. And mm-hmm. in their mind, they would see, oh, mm-hmm. the centrality of scripture and listening to my, you know, the preacher preached the word in language I can understand. Mm-hmm. And, oh, I get to take both the bread and the wine. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and these other people that serve it are like me. So there's all these images here 
to shift my mind towards the true church. Mm-hmm. And then I would see these other things that I had been surrounded with being swallowed up by the beast. So this is very typical imagery. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> moving on, though, um, as I said, this is about how do you tell who is in a true church? And while we, this is something Calvin deals with and Luther deals with, and normally it's the kinds of things that, that we would expect in, in there, you know, people that are, are, are modest and humble, um, um, thoughtful, um, that aren't haughty, um, Mm. Um, people that that are listening and attending to worship and attending to the poor, again, many of the kinds of values that we would expect to sure. be um, for Christians. Well, and to me, I would I would summarize all of those qualities as bearing fruit in their lives. Right. That the word is bearing fruit in their lives. Yes. Because that's the way the Synoptic Gospels frames it. You know? Right. It's, it's uh, the, the kind of fruit that the Synoptic Gospels is looking for is that kind of life character. Exactly. So that's how you would identify it. And, and, but, and I only point this out because it seems pretty obvious to us, but not everyone saw it that way. And so I pull out one, this, one of the more fiery characters of the Reformation, Thomas Munzer. And Thomas Munzer um, was a contemporary of Luther's. Um, he actually dies at the stake. Um, wow. <laughs> he does. Um, and he goes another sense. He's like, look, um, the, the, the Bible is asking us, in his opinion, to overthrow the current order. Mm. Um, to bring the kingdom of God now wow. requires us then to stand up against against the things that that put down those who can perform in the faith. So his idea is we have we have a right and responsibility to, to overthrow governments. We have a right and responsibility to support the poor and help them overthrow their evil lo- overlords. And if you don't, you're not really following what Christ is. And he uses wow. harsh language um, to this that that a good Christian, in his opinion, could. And, and should be willing to kill for this. Wow. So very harsh. Um, one of the, obviously one of the radicals, um, and actually is, is the primary person that is given credit for the uprising of the peasants in 1525, the German Peasants' War, which kills just, just, just thousands of people. Yeah. Um, now, Luther does respond to this, and he responds to it of, no, you don't have a right just to go and, slaughter people right um, in the name of jesus in the name of jesus right. exactly um yeah it reminds me of the, of, the, of the phrase i was alluding to you know jesus jesus said on a couple of occasions um you know the kingdom of god has is is coming now and many are trying to force their way into it and i i still I still kind of scratch my head as to what that means, but it sounds like, you know, it sounds like Munzer was trying to bring in the kingdom by force. And Jesus said, no, you have to become like little children who are the least of the least. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And I found this really, and, and, and look, and reading on on Munzer, I found this interesting letter he had written, um, which is now known as on the imaginary faith of 1524. But what was so interesting about it was, um, please don't publish this yet. These are just my ideas. And, <laughs> you know, obviously he was fleshing out his kind of reading of the bi- of the scripture. Uh, um, he was just kind of testing it out. Kind of testing it out, which eventually then then kind of took off and, and into into what he adopted as ideas to 
to his kind of battle cry. But I thought it was so interesting how he wrote that in there. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah. But his his question brings up something kind of interesting is, you know, what what is the role of the true church? Um, what is our what is our call, if you will, um, in terms of of doing and making social and political change? Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting question. And I, I looked at one other piece today. But let me let me let me let me actually I want to I want to go back to that because, you know, I, the title of that tract or that title of that letter on the imaginary faith is fascinating to me. You know, yeah. what is the imaginary faith? Yeah. <laughs> those who those who imagine themselves to be part of the kingdom of God and who, who, if he, if he will pretend uh, the things that we talked about initially, right? Mm-hmm. These, these fruits of the spirit that we mm-hmm. see of love and hope though, that's the imaginary faith because that's not what Jesus, Jesus didn't come in wanting us to, to, to be kind and thoughtful. He wants us to come in as revolutionary soldiers. Wow. I mean, that's his opinion of, so the things that we would think are the true faith today are, he says uh, it's the imaginary faith. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It is bizarre. Mm. But it's, I pointed. No wonder. It, no wonder he 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 got into trouble. <laughs> exactly, and and yet it, it reminds me of how people can really misconstrue mm-hmm. um, the the faith. Well, I mean, you know, coming away from Jesus' message, which clearly it, it, the the Bible's not only the not only Jesus' message, but the Bible's message is has a strong emphasis on social and economic justice. Mm-hmm. Undoubtedly, without doubt, you know, it's un- undisputable. But you don't find any, any even hint that somehow this is going to be achieved by violence. Right. Well, of course, Munzer takes the imagery from Revelation. Ah. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, you can take Revelation in a lot of ways. Exactly. As uh, David Koresh showed us in Waco, Texas. Exactly. And so that's where that comes from. And he's yeah. he's very critical of Luther, who really doesn't mm. have a lot of use for Revelation as a whole. Mm. And so he's like, he's ignoring the true final word. Mm. Of the, and again, taking it out of context. But he's seeing that, you know, that Jesus on the horse. and that. I have to, I have to add that to my, you know, I, I've I taught the class on Revelation in seminary and I've taught, I've, I've had various sermon series and, and, and book studies on Revelation in churches. I'll have to add that to my example of those who abuse and misuse. Yeah. The book of oh, he's, he's one of the best. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. So yes, thank you. <laughs> yes, you're welcome. Well, and it, as I said, this whole thing, you know, has led to, um, I had, a, had a, one other fellow wanted to point out was this questioning by this Robert Singleton. Now, Singleton, if you're familiar with Fox's book of martyrs, which was written in England about I think it's 1563 is the date I looked up. Um, yes. Um, it's known for basically martyrs during the English Reformation period. Um, during the whole time, people that were faithful people but maybe unfairly executed. And it, it, what, it, they weren't necessarily just executed under um, Mary, Bloody Mary, if you will, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but executed at any time during this period Um uh, which was very volatile, and it wasn't Mary alone. Who, uh, while Mary did put to death many, frankly, so did Elizabeth. After that, and right. prior to that, so did um, Henry the sure. Henry the Eighth. So, anyway, this individual was um, in the court, um, the court uh, uh, preacher of Anne Boleyn, mm. um, 
And uh, he was very much supportive of kind of the Reformation cause there. Now, a lot of times, you know, in simple history, the assumption is, oh, well, Henry simply divorced Catherine of Aragon so he could marry Anne Boleyn. Well, (laughs) yes and no. That's a pretty simple way to look at it. Mind you, that this is a pretty corrupt Roman Catholic church that our entire European um, clergy are aware of. I mean, even even Erasmus and in England, Sir Thomas More saying, "Hey, they're just taking money." Right. So to well, find- and 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 they seem to have take take great delight in being able to meddle in affairs of state around. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and it's corrupt itself. Um, and so they were really offering for the first time theology that supported. Um, that supported a different a, a, a different organization of the church and suggested, hey, if you are king, are you not chosen by God uh, to be in this role? And furthermore, to be head of the church, is mm. the Pope really ahead of you? Mm. And um, I'm per- sure I'm sure that Henry VIII um, didn't find too much to uh, quibble with when when folks came to him and said, you should be the head of the church, not the Pope. Oddly enough, <laughs> oddly enough, though, he, you know, Henry VIII is not given very much credit. But, and, <laughs> well, you know, since he did behead two of his wives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me see. Um, um, lived, beheaded, died. Lived, beheaded, survived. That's the that's the role of the six wives, right? Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Lived, beheaded, died. Lived, beheaded, survived. <laughs> Henry's six wives. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah, I, I was I was blessed to study with really one of the best uh, best historians ever in uh, in the English Reformation and early modern period. So cool. Yeah, she she taught me that little. But it had to appeal to his <laughs> ego, you know that that yes, he would not it, only oh, be yes. the king of England, but he would be the head of the English church. Absolutely. But there was a man there who was actually devout and very very worried about um, about his soul, very, very concerned about breaking away from the church. And what's interesting is after he breaks away and he kind of starts down this path of, of if you will, Lutheran um, ideology he, or theology, he then ba- backtracks. And so the mm. Church of England under Henry, with the exception of him being in charge of it, um, starts to look a lot more mm, like the Roman Catholic yeah, tradition yeah. in terms of the, the rituals and um, in terms of the theology. Well, and, and the Anglican church today still, I mean, I, I know, I know an Episcopalian minister who would say we are, we are the Catholic church. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, and he, you know, with Anne Boleyn, of course, um, coming in and then the strangeness by which, um, you know, she had many miscarriages, and then we have the fear of the witches um, coming in. In fact, she was actually executed ultimately for witchcraft. Um, th- but there's a, there was all kinds of political intrigue there as well. But, but but it was a man who was very very panicked about his his his, his progeny his soul and his and, oh, his, and his soul, soul yeah. and his soul, wow. which is really strange. But Henry he, was pan- panicked about his soul. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very, very deeper guy than we give him credit for. Kind so. of an interesting character. And then, but it just, it, you know, it got so ugly. <laughs> As we know, it just right. got so ugly. Um, 
but anyway, this Robert Singleton um, was very much kind of behind this idea, but um, and very supportive of then of this idea of not only divorce, um, but also that Henry could be head of the church, and was saying, "Look, you are you are you have divine right. You're a king. If you're chosen to be king, why are you allowing the pope to stand over you?" Now, mind you, the idea of the Pope being over the lordship of the king really went to Charlemagne. Why? Because right. the Pope crowned right. him, put right. the crown, and we have all those images from that. He, he, was, he was using the Pope to legitimate his reign, but in, in, it wound up giving the Pope the power. Exactly. So who has the power? <laughs> right. So this the whole concept of divine right of kings really starts really pushing through to a new level now. Divine right to rule, divine right over the church wow. as well. Um, really big deal. And, of course, it has a lot of implications. Oh, you know, we no longer have to send all of our, uh, all <laughs> right. of our, our money to, the, to Rome to build St. Peter's. Hey, great. We'll keep it here. We'll, we'll build we'll St. Paul's. Here. Exactly. <laughs> so what an inter- yeah, what an interesting um, piece. But the same fellow is executed ultimately, and he's in the Fox's Book of Martyrs, because he says, but wait a minute. You can still go against an unjust ruler. You could still go against mm. the very king that is now in charge if he indeed is not, is not following what's expected as a king. So again, Invisible church, visible church. If he's not, if he's not um, uh, c- conducting his rule in accordance with the principles of the kingdom of mm-hmm. God, of justice and peace and, and these kinds of things, then, then he has forfeited his divine right, I guess. Mm-hmm. Wow. Exactly, exactly. So this is an interesting little piece at the end. I think it will end up my section nicely. But he says, God preserve his church universal and this church of England special and the supreme head thereof, our king, and grant us thy blessing without ending. Amen. So that was his, you know, the end of his sermon, and at least prior to his questioning the authority of the king. Wow. So, All right. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back, and um, we are going to wrap up our our time uh, today by talking a little bit about how we today promote the work of the kingdom. And so I'm going to let Christy lead us off. Yeah, this has been something kind of interesting to me because what really is our work in the kingdom. And my church has been reading uh, Issa Macaulay's Reading While Black. It's a wonderful book um, and of how someone who has grown up um, black um, and through black institutions like the black church um, come to the Bible and how, how, how the Bible speaks to them. But one of the things that he, he says, which I think is really interesting, is that if you grow up in this background, part of your call is to oppose, actively oppose institutions that continue to support systemic racism. Mm. And it reminds me of to what extent, to what extent is that the kingdom that we're in and promoting political change through, through the church? Is that part of our call? And I think that's a huge question mark a lot of us hold, a lot of us hold as pastors, and um, I think a lot of our congregation does as well. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, you know, for me, myself, I have always made a distinction between preaching on issues 
versus preaching on politics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, I grew up in the era where the Johnson Act was just the law of the land, you know, that you didn't cross that line of politicking for somebody uh, in office because you put your tax exempt status in jeopardy. I know that there's, I know that there, there are people who are trying to blur that line now. I, but I still, I still would say, you know, I, I am comfortable preaching on issues and, and I'm, but I'm not comfortable politicking. Now I will say this in 2016, um, the lectionary cycle had Psalms of justice mm-hmm. that whole summer mm-hmm. of 2016. And I preached, I intentionally preached sermons on social justice from the Psalms because I, in my opinion, the 2016 election was a lot hinged on social justice mm-hmm. because of some of the things that Mr. Trump was promoting. And, you know, uh, at one point I even said something to the effect of no one person has that much power to, to determine, you know, um, the lives of the world. I don't care what color house you live in. Oh, there you go. <laughs> that was the most political I got with right. it. But the sad thing is, so after the election comes along, and I've got some folks in my congregation who are staunch Democrats, and they were just in, they, they were in grief, deep, deep grief for mm-hmm. months, some of them. And they would come to me and talk to me. And I said, I, I, you know, with one of them, I said, well, I preached on all that. He said, this, this fellow said, why don't you preach on this oh, stuff? Oh, you're right. I right. said, I preached on all this stuff the summer of the election. Well, I wasn't listening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so after that, if I if I if I brought in some sort of possibly politically sensitive topic that where I was again preaching on the issue, mm-hmm. not necessarily the politics, you know, I would ask him after the sermon, "Were you listening?" Yep, I was listening. <laughs> exactly. I, I find that it's it's like so they're that's looking. part of the that's part of the frustration is if right. you if you if you, you know you 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 can I address the issue and I I would address the issues very clearly and very straightforwardly and and it's like folks just oh they, that's a sermon you know they, they so it's miss not really, they yeah. miss what you're saying and and yeah. and they're looking for um they're looking for a name yeah and I think that's interesting because I would never use a name um no. Uh, and I think that's part of uh, that's part of the challenge, though, is is how to get people to wake up to how the policies that are here mm-hmm. and how they need to respond as Christians. Um, and I I th- I think we think that when we're giving issue oriented sermons that that people will put draw the lines and say, oh gosh, I, this makes sense. I, this is how I have to have to respond. But it doesn't somehow always it, go it's there. It's sort of that sacred, secular, mm-hmm. you know, line that, that seems to divide our lives. And, and you know, it's like, well, we're in church. So we're talking about what goes on church here. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I, I, you know I, I have made it abundantly clear that I'm talking about all of life, <laughs> you know, countless times right. in my preaching. And, and yet there's still sort of this lingering disconnect. And I don't know, frankly, how to overcome that disconnect. Um, I, I, I don't either. I don't either. Um, I, I, do think, I do think that as we give our messages, and if people, even if they're only passively listening, I do think the words do over time penetrate 
their brains. They can. can. I think they can. It's a little bit like Jesus said, you know, for those who are able to hear the message, they will get it. Right, right. Uh, Unfortunately, even in church, you know, there are some who just aren't able to hear. Right. Because they're too rooted in their own tradition. Well, they are. Of where, you know, where they, what they were taught when they grew up. Or they're going to hear, <clears throat> they're going to selectively hear what you say. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I said. hear it through their own filter. I had a prayer. I, I, I'm an associate pastor, so I was, I often do the prayers. But I had a prayer where we were, we really, we were praying about um, um, the, uh, uh, Derek Chauvin trial, honestly, mm-hmm. and about um, George Floyd, mm-hmm. and you know, I worded this very carefully in there, um, basically saying, "Look, we need we need justice for everybody," um, and and but I think anyone who wanted to hear whatever they could out yep. of it, even though yep. I had one thing in mind, which was we need to defeat systemic racism, we need to right. um, we need to be praying for a more just society. I think if you had been thinking that. Chauvin wasn't guilty. You probably you could have jumped have in and heard saying, something else. He needs to be. He needs to be um, exonerated. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because I was very careful about it, and yeah. I, I even then I thought, oh, am I careful enough? And maybe, I guess because I don't want people angry leaving my church and then not hearing and then mm-hmm. not not moving forward. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it has to like jump in on their lives. Right. I had a. I went to a church that used to have um, that did a whole series on tough topics, and um, the associate at the time decided she gave a really, really heavy-duty sermon on gun control, and a, a couple members heard it and said, "I'm done," and they left wow. the church yeah. because not allowing there to be discussion. And mm-hmm. the senior pastor was like, "That's just her opinion," but they left the church anyway. And mm-hmm. I thought, when it comes from wow. the pulpit, though. It comes across as more than just your opinion. It it does. Yeah. It does. Yeah, and and I think I think you know we do have a responsibility to preach the whole counsel of God, and that means we do have a responsibility to call out issues of justice based on the Bible. I think, however, we also we also have to remember that we have a pastoral responsibility. We have a relationship with these people, and and you know it's like being in a family. Mm-hmm. You know, um, do you really want to say something that you know is going to lead to a a uh, an irreparable breach in the relationship? You know, because if you do, then you've you forsake you've you've lost any opportunity at ministry right. with this person right. ever. You know, when when I first came t- to this church. I was preaching a sermon and I was using examples about where the church is divided. And one of them I said was, was uh, over, over gay rights. Mm. And a gentleman pulled me aside afterward. I, 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 was, just, I was just in my first weeks mm. of being the pastor. And a gentleman pulled me aside afterward and said, if you're going to start preaching on gay issues, I'm out of here, I'm done. And I said, well, I was just using that as an example of, of, of issues on which we were divided. And we, we had a conversation about mm-hmm. it, and, and he's still coming to the church. You know, We probably have different ideas about gay rights. Um, and, I, you know, again, I, I don't feel that I'm in a place in this congregation where I can really uh, go in depth into that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I will say this, though. 
when the, the PCOSA changed the directory for worship to take out the language that had husband and wife mm-hmm. in it specifically for Christian marriage, we had a very fruitful discussion in our session. I wanted to discuss it with them before our presbytery voted on ratifying that. kind of wanted to see where my folks were. And, um, you know, um, we came up with sort of a working policy. One of them was, number one, we want to extend the same welcome to all people that we have received from God. Number two, you know, we also sort of said we're not going to be a wedding chapel. Right, you know, right, right. And, and some folks are comfortable with that. That's fine. I'm not comfortable with that. Right. Um, and, and, but um, as, we, as we got to the, as we were dealing with the discussion, it was one of my lifelong farmers, good man, who said, what if it's somebody who grew up in this church? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Which is, that's where the water hits that, the it, that's, wheel. It's exactly what happened that, in my congregation. That's where the rubber meets the road, you yep. know. When it's, when it's a, a kid who grew up in your church, it's a kid some, everybody knows and loves, you're really going to turn them down and say, right. no, we don't do those kinds of weddings in this church. Right. And so I was really proud of, I was really proud of them. Um, I, and again, I think if that were to happen, there might be a couple of folks who'd be upset about it. But... Um, you know, it's not like we're cramming it down anybody's throat. And I think that's the diff- That's the difference mm-hmm. is that when we preach from the pulpit, what you know, if we we may think I'm just giving my opinion, but it can really come across as, oh, this is the man. This is the man of the woman speaking for God, and and they're yeah. cramming it down my throat, right? And and I don't really want that. Exactly, and that's yeah. I think what happened in in this situation. Yeah, um, I've always I've always had this 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 philosophy that. We have to adopt kingdom means if we're going to accomplish kingdom ends. Uh, yeah. Now, one might think, well, anything you do to bring an end to systemic racism is related to the kingdom. Mm-hmm. But I think there are a lot of people who are approaching that topic, and we've talked about this before, out of anger, um, uh, and 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 they may not be promoting violence, but their but their their rhetoric is so sharp that it's sort of a verbal kind of attack. Mm-hmm. And I don't see that as a kingdom means myself. And, and I understand the fact that there's some folks out there who feel angry. Um, some some of them feel like. You know, their lives mm-hmm. are at stake, or their children's lives are at stake. You know, their brother's lives are at stake. Um, I understand that. Right. Um, and I, I don't mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to criticize how they feel about that at all. I just think that we as, as ministers of the gospel, we have to find a way, even if we feel that anger, we have to find a way to process that anger ourselves so that when we can actually come to the topic and, and help try to lead our people mm-hmm. in, in, a, in the direction toward promoting the kingdom, that we're actually promoting the kingdom and not just pushing forth our own anger, mm-hmm. our own agenda. And I think there's a big difference mm-hmm. between those two. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's very well, very well, very well spoken. I, you know, I, uh, I'm, I'm guaranteed there's people listening that disagree, um, mm-hmm. that, that feel that we should absolutely be much more aggressive. I, my question always is though, um, you, you got to make really careful choices, um, and what appears to be the right thing isn't always doesn't always have the right the right end. Um, yeah. 
And um, I like your approach. I mean, your approach is, goes more with my personal take on it because I do think you have to weigh everything very, very carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, um, well, and so, for example, one of the ways that we are going to deal with systemic racism in this church is uh, we discovered a book by, I can't call their names right now, but it, Winona Guo and Priya Volcha. Yeah, I can. Uh, they wrote a book called uh, Tell Me Who You Are. And these are two um, young um, uh, Asian-American women who, after high school, took a year off and they traveled around the country and just met people and said, tell me who you are. And so it's a book of stories, Mm -hmm. of of people's stories, all kinds of issues, um, race, gender, identity, uh, poverty, you know, all kinds of issues. And so we've been, we've been in the process of, of preparing uh, um, um, to share some of those stories with our congregation, probably in the newsletter. Um, and, you know, I'll be, I'll be writing some columns to introduce some of those and to, and to sort of promote some of the questions, questioning that we want people to just start, start by listening. We feel like, you know, the place to start for this congregation is to try to learn to listen to people's stories who come from a different space than we do we thought about we were we were actually thinking about doing this in 2020 but because of the heated nature of the political rhetoric at that point in time we felt like this would be perceived as as political campaigning by our people we weren't really worried about the irs we were more concerned about how our people would perceive it and not as more of a spiritual endeavor going along with the Matthew 25 initiative, because that's, you know, eliminating, working to eliminate systemic racism is one of the Matthew 25 initiatives. And we're, we're a Matthew 25 church. And so we wanted to try to, you know, we, we started off with congregational vitality and we wanted to move into that systemic racism piece and try to try to address that in this context. Um, so we, we, we held off and we're going to start doing that in the fall of, of uh, 2021 um, uh, taking some stories from that book and just um, encouraging people to read them and listen to their stories. And I, I realize for some folks that might be a really almost a lame <laughs> approach because, you know, it's, it's, um, it's not very ag- aggressive. But in my mind, I think this is a very appropriate step for this congregation right. because we have a lot of people who have lived their whole lives and haven't had much contact with a lot exactly. of the folks whose stories are being told exactly. in, this story, in this book. I, and I think that's the reality. It reminds me of a, a program I went to, and I got in a breakout session, and it was, oh, probably six white women and one black woman. And the black woman was particularly annoyed that you know, she wanted action. And I didn't blame her for wanting action. The other people in that group were still kind of awakening. This is, And it sounds, it sounds awful, but... Because you should be aware that systemic racism happens, but not everybody you, is. They just didn't. They just yeah. weren't in that space, and so it was. It was eye opening. It was eye opening um, to me, and uh, you know, I, I'm in a church that that's in a spot that we actually can really do some do some amazing work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we, even us, in in a city that is known for its systemic racism. Um, even we had still had to do our awakening piece um, because we don't live it every day. Um, um, 
in a in a white suburban church, which should be living it every day, but right, but we don't. That's part of the right. awakening process. Right. Well, and the reality is that that life for many of us in many of our churches has been incredibly segregated, and our experiences have been fairly culturally monolithic, and we just don't, you know, many of our people just just it's like talking a foreign language to them. They don't get systemic race. When they hear systemic racism, they think of handouts and they think of, of um, uh, so they, they sort of hear the language of victimhood and they, they hear all kinds of different things. And, you know, I, as I said, I, I understand that there are people who are, they, they feel like this is, this is something that has to be changed now because people are dying. Mm-hmm. People they know and love mm-hmm. are dying. And that's wrong. And, and I agree with that. I agree with that 100%. But it, it's like you said, I mean, I feel like, you know, I have to work with my congregation where they are. And I think we all do. Mm-hmm. And, and so that takes, that takes some wisdom. That takes some, some sensitivity. And, and as I said before, I mean, I think we accomplish kingdom goals only when we use kingdom means. Yeah. And, I think and, that's really, I think that's the best token, right? You know, kingdom goal kingdom means yeah and and i and really thomas munster means right well and I, I really i really came across that when i was in the baptist world because mm-hmm. i saw so many southern baptist preachers and their 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 mo was any means to accomplish the end mm-hmm. any means to accomplish the end as long as you get the win that's all that matters and that just disgusted me and mm-hmm. and so I, that's where i really became very strongly con- had had such a strong conviction about no, if you're going to accomplish kingdom goals, you have to use yeah. kingdom means. I think that's, I, I, I think of this whole conversation, that's the takeaway. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think everyone, I think everyone can understand. Yeah. That. And yeah. you know what that, what that's going to look like in, in a specific situation is going to be different from case to case. Absolutely. You know, I, I can't say that we're bosom buddies, but I'm acquainted with Bruce Reyes Chow. And Bruce is in a, in a church in Palo Alto, California, that's very progressive on these things. Mm-hmm. And so what's going to be appropriate in that church is going to be very different from what's going to be appropriate in, right. in my church or in your right. church. Right, yeah. Well, and, you know, I was just in a church in a very, very small town in the middle of everywhere, if you will. and uh, but <laughs> As opposed it, to the middle well, of nowhere. <laughs> it occurred to me, I got my shot there, I got my COVID shot there. And what occurred to me as I walked in there was... Everybody was white. There wasn't a single person who wasn't white in there. I mean, I, 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 I forgot that places like that existed. I mean, there was, and, and so you're in a totally different reality in, in, in a town like that. They, they, there's no one there that lives there that's not white. They don't, they don't even, aren't even familiar with folks that have different colored skin. Mm-hmm. I, it, they're going to be in a different starting place. Mm-hmm. They're not, they don't see any pieces of this anywhere. It's not in their face. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and they, when they do see it on the news, they think, you know, um, these folks are rioting. These folks are, 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 are destroying property. They, that's what they see. They don't see people who are desperate for the lives of their right. people. They don't. It's yeah. not part of their experience. Well, yeah. um, thank you, Alan. I like, I think we end today just everyone thinking about um, um, kingdom ends, kingdom means. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Christy. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. 
It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.